Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Dr. David Bell, a past president of the British Psychoanalytic Society. He was a consultant psychiatrist in the adult department at the Tavistock, where he worked in adult services from 1995 until his retirement earlier this year. In his role as staff governor at the Tavistock, David was approached by a large number of clinicians who were working or had worked on the Tavistock Gender Identity Development Service. They raised very serious concerns about JIDS, and David wrote a report which was critical of JIDS in 2018. I welcome David Bell to Savage Minds. Can you talk to us about your history with the Tavistock and Portman NHS Foundation Trust in North London and your involvement in GIDS? So I start off, so I'm a consultant psychiatrist and psychoanalyst and um, a former president of the British Psychoanalytic Society. And um, I recently retired from the Tavistock and Portman NHS Trust. That's the proper name, but generally known as the TAVI or the Tavistock nationally and internationally. Um, and the Tavistock is, I, I was employed there as a consultant psychiatrist in psychotherapy, uh, working in the adult department, um, where I ran a service, I built up a service for providing um, psychotherapeutic help for people with very complex, long-term enduring problems. Um, so we set up a service where they could get treatment for two years, twice a week, followed by a group, so a long-term treatment, all in the, in the health service, of course. So, um, and I also did a lot of teaching and lecturing, and I was on the um, organization of the scientific program. So I was a, a very sort of senior uh, clinician and academic in the trust. Um, and we had some, awareness of the gender identity service but there was also a sense that we kind that people kind of knew of it but didn't want to know about it we knew at some level if we went there we would discover things we didn't really we weren't going to be happy about and uh, i think that was a sort of background phenomenon and of course the service was growing exponentially from about uh, 80 or 90 referrals in 2009 to 2,700 in 2018-19. But the way I became involved was because um, I was a, um, what's called the, I was a member of what's called the Council of Governors. Um, and the Council of Governors is, a, if you like, a stakeholder oversight body of the board. The NHS Trust is run by a board made up of directors and chaired by the chairman of the board and the chief executive officer is obviously part of that. Um, but there's a parallel structure called the Council of Governors, which is made up of um, residents in areas where, who are elected, who, which the Tavistock serves, so it's London, parts of London, parts of the UK and so on, but also it's made up of representative university, representative from uh, commissioning agencies like general practitioners and so on, and also staff governors. And I was a staff governor, so I was a representative for 
the academic and clinical staff of the trust. I was elected by them and um, I served two terms. Each term was three years, but it was in the second term that all this came up. And basically what happened was that some staff from the uh, JID service sought me out, both because they knew I was a psychoanalyst and I probably, they probably picked up that I had concerns maybe and things that I'd said in various places, I don't know. But also, of course, because I was their representative on the council. So they came to me to talk, to express their concerns about the gender service. Um, and they were, you know, the way these things go, you know, first of all, one came, then two, then four, and eventually there were 10. And that was a third, roughly, of the London-based service. So a third of the staff of the London-based, I say London-based because there's also a service in Leeds, which is also run by the Tavistock. So they raised very serious concerns with me, both clinical and very serious ethical concerns about the, what they saw as a mistreatment of these children. So they raised very serious concerns with me, both clinical and very serious ethical concerns about the, what they saw as a mistreatment of these children children and young people. Um, what happened was they all raised concerns. It was very clear to me the concerns that they raised were similar, but not orchestrated. There were different people who came to talk to me. Um, some were very senior and some more junior. Um, but they, and they all focused on different things, but they, they mentioned similar things. Um, some of them were gay, uh, uh, gay, you know, gay, gay or lesbian clinicians uh, who, uh, so they tended to focus more on the on that whole issue, which I'll explain in a moment. But the Gender Identity Service is a national service, so that means it's funded nationally, and it's a very important service to the trust. Uh, it's been seen as a kind of um, uh, diamond in the crown of the trust because it's thought to be edgy and um, uh, very much on, on the uh, cutting edge of things. Um, and uh, also it's uh, very, very importantly, it's, it's an important part of the trust income. So um, the gender services, because there's also an adult service. Um, so the adult and the child and adolescent service probably account for a third somewhere between 25% and a third of the trust income. And that's guaranteed income because it's nationally funded. It's a national service. Uh, other services aren't guaranteed. They have to be commissioned and worked out every year. So um, these uh, clinicians, basically um, the complaints were as follows. The concerns were as follows. One was the completely overburdened service. So clinicians were working with 140 patients. And as one clinician put it to me, you know, when I was working on another service, I think he was a family therapist. He said, if you said, um, John, the patient whose uh, father was a taxi driver who had the terrible accident, everything would come back to me. I'd remember everything about that family. You know, with these patients, I can't remember anything. It was all a fog because there's so many patients and they all say quite similar things because they've all rehearsed before they come to the trust. 
So they've got a similar kind of narrative which they've rehearsed because they they see the JID service, which in many ways is what it, it has been, as a gateway to medical and surgical intervention. So they were concerned about the number. They were concerned about the um, low qualifications of the clinicians who were seeing these, um, these, these, these children. The, the clinician said to me that the children were very difficult for all sorts of reasons and also very complex. And some of the most difficult cases they'd had to deal with. But they were being dealt with by what are called band seven psychologists. That's a very low level on term, in terms of clinical experience. These are psychologists who will have virtually no experience of long-term engagement with difficult children or families, fresh out of training. And um, they're being given these huge numbers. And the reasons for that is financial because the JID service agrees a contract with the NHS and then they get this huge increase in referrals over the years, which of course is itself is an interesting phenomenon. And they couldn't manage them. So they managed the contract by recruiting um, less experienced workers who they can pay less and also overburdening them. So the children are being seen by less experienced people who don't have time in an inappropriate manner. They also felt the children uh, came with many complex problems. Um, for example, uh, 25 to 30% maybe on the autistic spectrum, autistic spectrum, particularly so in girls. They felt many of them were suffering from depression. Many of them had complex family problems that would be take a long time to get the trust of the family to be able to think about. For example, one of the things they noted was severe family trauma, such as sexual abuse in previous generations. So for example, a mother who was abused may have complex feelings about her daughter, may wish she had a son and so on. So these can be uh, important sort of background factors. Then there are children who are just alone in the world, who, who sort of become convinced that they were trans, but there were questions in the therapist's mind about whether this was providing them with a kind of a home, um, uh, an identity, which they were searching for. And many other problems that these children had. And there was a worry that all these problems were cast aside and everything was rebranded in terms of being a gender problem, rather than the gender problem being part of all the other problems that they had and needed sorting out and thinking about. They noted that certain of the kids were pushed through after only one or two meetings onto the medical uh, intervention program, which meant they referred to, to, to a clinic where they were started on puberty blockers. And although puberty blockers originally were thought of as a kind of interregnum, which I, I have doubts about anyway, but now 98% of children that had changed were now going onto opposite sex hormones. So, these things were causing, being put on a pathway for irreversible changes and potentially very damaging changes to these children's bodies after very little thought. And this is what, what worried them. Another very important area is that a lot of these children, if left alone, would become gender non-conforming gay or lesbian men and women. 
um, one of the things that uh, they were very concerned about were there were families in which there was clear homophobia. And the families, for whatever complicated reasons, were sort of happier, if you like, with a trans child than with a gay child. And there were uh, children who they felt, and this has increasingly become known, pick up a kind of homophobia, either in the family, in themselves, of course, or in the culture around them. We all tend to think we're all very liberal about these things. But if you live in the northeast of England or in a rural community or uh, a less sort of woke, edgy community, being gay or lesbian is still not easy. And some of these children would sense, you know, that say a, a girl thinks, I fancy girls, she'd stay nine or 10, she'd be need to go into puberty. And you might have the transient thought, maybe I'm a boy. But 20 years ago, in a certain sense, that wouldn't have mattered. She could have that thought, she could even play with that thought, but then become a gender non-conforming lesbian woman. But now there was so much in the culture and the pressure from the ideological movements such as mermaids and Stonewall and the change in culture, the idea soon becomes a kind of peculiar reality. I am a boy, I'm a boy in a girl's body. And then that gets affirmed in a very inappropriate way by the clinical services and people questioning it um, felt that they were being told they were transphobic. So some of the gay and lesbian clinicians were particularly disturbed because when they raised these issues, they were told they were angry gay people. And sometimes they were just taken off the case. And when I went into it myself, I discovered that the service didn't really seem to have much thought about sexuality, only thought about gender. So gender had completely trumped sexuality. And it was during the process of my preparing the report that um, a report went to the, uh, the board of the Tavistock saying that they'd started to think about sexuality. Well, I thought that's, that's good, but the place had been going for 20 years. Is this the time where they start recognizing that sexuality and gender are totally intertwined. They can't be separated out. The other main, last main area was that um, the, the clinicians felt the children didn't really have the capacity to properly consent. You know, how can a, a 10 year old, nine or 10 year old child, when they're told, for example, that if you start puberty blockers and go on to opposite sex hormones eventually, um, you might not be able to have an orgasm. You won't be able to have children. The child, what do you think the child does? The child goes, oh, I don't want to talk about that. Oh, I don't want children. I don't want to talk about orgasms. I'm 10, you know, but they don't say I'm 10, you know. But they really feel that they can't think about the long-term implications of these things. And they're not often mental state. The children and the young people they're not saying I want to be a, a girl or a boy. They're saying I am. And what's more, they're highly disturbed. They're not, they say, get me out of this. I want out of this. I can't stand this. And the way they've come to believe to get out of the terrible mental state that they're in is not to think about their minds, but to change their bodies. So I took my, I wrote my report, the report that was in, eventually I wrote it in the summer of 2018, uh, when the 
managers, you know, the chief executive and the chairman of the board saw the report, they tried to stop it. They tried to stop it going to the Council of Governors. But I overrode them and sent it under my own legal advice that I had an obligation to do so. And um, then they set up a review, which they wouldn't let me have any involvement with. And the review did actually reveal some worrying things, but was treated by the board as a kind of, um, yeah, everything's basically okay. And that's what the chief executive said. Um, but this was part of the chain. And then, and then after that, um, there was some discussion on council and there were, uh, uh, although it, the, the, the review went very easily through the board, it had a harder time on council. Uh, I wasn't there then, I'd stood down by that time as um, governor because it came to the end of my term. And um, then there was a leak, my report was leaked to the press, which I was very worried about, but actually in the end I think it was a very good thing because it was very well reported. And then subsequently when the, the way the trust tried to manage my report and me defaming me, uh, Marcus Evans resigned. And um, you know, since then has been a very important figure in this whole debate. And when you wrote this report, you sent it to Paul Jenkins and Paul Burstow. Yes. And were you given the information that you had requested to write your report to have data? No, what happened was in, in the process of writing the report, I asked for, I wrote to the um, Polly Carmichael and, um, I think probably just to Polly Carmichael as the director of the gender service to say I was writing a report and I needed some basic data. So the kind of data I wanted was changes in rates of referrals, changes in um, um, the natal sex of those who are referred, because we know there's been a big transformation from being slightly more than half men to being nearly 75% girls. I asked for those figures. I wanted to know how many had other psychiatric disorders. Um, I wanted to know what percentage of them went on to puberty blockers and if there'd been any changes over the years in the percentage going on to puberty blockers. Fairly basic questions, you know, which any functioning service should be able to answer the click of a switch these days. You know, just bring up a spreadsheet, shouldn't be too difficult. Uh, but they, never, they didn't answer me, but instead they complained to Paul Jenkins, I was asking these questions. So he then wrote to me and said that I shouldn't be asking Jids these questions because they're very busy. Seems an odd thing to say, that they're too busy to answer a question. But he did then say that if I had any questions, I should ask him. So I put the same questions to him and he never answered them. And I didn't know whether he wasn't answering them because he didn't really want to support me in doing the report or whether the figures weren't available. And I think it's a combination of both. But of course, what the judicial review revealed is that there were no figures. So my report um, uh, did eventually go to the Council of Governors. There was a review. The review was basically a whitewash and no major changes were made to the service as a result. Although if you read the review carefully, it does raise some things like the inappropriate involvement of, gen of trans ideology groups in the service and the harassment of uh, 
the intimidation of, of staff. Um, however, nothing sort of really happened. But of course, I wasn't the only person raising these concerns. Many people were raising these concerns. Parents of um, uh, children and adolescents had written a letter to the chief executive, um, which I eventually saw, I wasn't of course part of, but they were raising exactly the same concerns as I was raising. Um, and then there were various groups of people set up setting themselves up because they were worried about these children and what was happening. Um, and eventually, uh, one of the young people who went through the service, now a young woman, Kira Bell, no relation, um, she was one of a, a very you know, increasing group called detransitioners. These people are people who felt, you know, said, I, I am a boy, I want to be a boy or the other way around, always wanted to be girls, and I need to be changed, but now regretted it, regretted that they'd had mastectomies, that their bodies had changed in ways that couldn't be reversed, and so on. So Kira Bell was one of those, and she felt the service had let her down by not, but by going along with things in this way and affirming things. So she sought a legal redress. She didn't sue the trust for damages. She did something different. So her lawyer, Paul Conrath, um, they sought not to, not, not for damages, but they sought to challenge both JIDs, well, both the Tavistock and, and the NHS England on a legal point. And the legal point was that these children didn't have the capacity to consent. So that was the nature of the review. The uh, um, people making the claim were Kira Bell and an anonymous parent, who for obvious reasons remained anonymous. And um, the judicial review is a, is a very high level legal hearing. Three or four judges uh, listened to evidence over three or four days. And that was last December, they, well, the, the hearing wasn't in December, but the result came in December. And they found that the, these children and young people didn't have the capacity for consent. What they meant was that these children were likely to be in such an intensely conflicted and painful state of mind with very limited ways of being able to consider things that they couldn't properly weigh up the pros and cons. They just wanted the treatment, so to speak. And um, they also recognized that um, there was no evidence base for this treatment. That in a sense wasn't their remit. They weren't there to advise the NHS on what treatment they could and couldn't do. That is now being investigated by a review being led by Hilary Cass. But um, they did, in their, in their review, in, in their judgment, they, it's a very English thing. The judges keep saying that they were somewhat surprised. That's coded English for very shocked. And they, they were shocked, really, that there was no evidence base for this treatment. There was no data. The, none of the patients were followed up properly. So there was no knowledge about what happens to these patients. 
There was no data on what other kinds of psychological or psychiatric problems these children had because it hadn't been recorded. Um, so one could say this, that even if the children could weigh up and consider the pros and the cons, there wasn't really any evidence base for them to base their considerations on. So they found that children under 16 couldn't consent and children between 16 and 18, although they didn't give a firm ruling, they said the trust would be well advised to take advice on every case and consider the court's help in making this kind of decision, which has such irreversible consequences. So I felt very borne out by the judicial review because in the course of, it's, it's not long, it's easily obtainable online. If you put judicial review, uh, Kira Bell, Tavistock, you'll find it. Uh, it's about, I suppose, 20 or 30 pages long, maybe a bit longer. It doesn't take long to read, but the reasoning is very, very careful. And one of the things that the judges say, which is very important, is they wonder why 98% of children persist. That is, once they're on the puberty blocking drugs, they go on to opposite sex hormones, whereas before the large majority didn't. And they thought one of the, the, one of the reasons for this is that it's slightly subtle, but very important that once the children are on the pathway, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, that it's very difficult to come off it. So the very act of prescribing the puberty blockers is one of the factors which then confirms that they will be continued and then they'll go on to opposite sex hormones. Because the children are very likely, once you're on puberty blockers, to become increasingly frightened of puberty. There's no, no one said, we'll help you, we'll try and support you. It's a terrible thing that you're going through, given all your complex feelings, but we'll try and help you and support you. They'll say, no, we'll stop it happening. So the child might think, great, it can be stopped. But then they're going to live in dread of coming off those blockers and suddenly puberty is going to occur. So you've colluded with the terror in the child and colluded with a kind of disgust of their changing bodies. And because of your report, you were investigated. There was a review of JIDS, also led by Dinesh Sinha. Yeah. But then you were also put under review. Well, I was subjected to a threat of disciplinary action against me. Um, the, I, I was bullied by the trust, really. I, was, I had threatening letters from the trust telling me, for example, that I mustn't speak to Sonia Appleby. Sonia Appleby is a, is a child safeguarding lead for the trust. And I was told I couldn't speak to her or risk disciplinary action. I later learned, I hadn't known at the time of writing my report, that clinicians have been on, in the service have been told not to speak to the child safeguarding lead if they had any concerns about children. She's currently um, involved in her own legal process against the trust for she uh, feels she's been suffered what's technically called a detriment for raising concerns. That is, the actions have been taken against her or things said about her because she's raised her own concerns. So the um, trust, first of all, uh, threatened me and bullied me and demanded that I didn't speak to, to, to Sonia Appleby and that I didn't have any further engagement with the gender service. Um, and then subsequently, um, I had a meeting 
because uh, I was continuing to raise concerns and speak about this in various places, but always very, very careful, because by this time I, I had very good legal advice. And um, that was ever since they tried to stop me sending the report to the Council of Governors. So everything I did, I did, I did with legal advice. So I was continuing to speak, but whenever I spoke or wrote about these matters, I always made it clear that I was speaking in my own capacity, not, I was not expressing the views of the Tavistock, and that meant that I was legally protected. Uh, however, the trust decided to take, to, to threaten me. And at one point they met with me and told me that, and then subsequently wrote to me saying that I, well, in the meeting with me, they accused me of various things. They told me that I'd spoken to the, I'd sought out contact with the press or responded to journalists, which was completely untrue. Um, they accused me of being transphobic, which was completely untrue. They told me I'd talk and talked badly about trans people. And I was very upset about that because I get like, you know, I'm very, feel very strongly that trans people shouldn't be dis discriminated against in any way. And um, people should be free to express their sexuality, gender identity, and so on. But my concerns were very particular about these young people and children um, who uh, I felt were being subjected to a form of conversion therapy. That instead of growing up to be non-conforming gay people, they were uh, undergoing a kind of conversion therapy and changing their um, gender identity through changes in their body. Um, so this trust threatened me, told me I couldn't speak, and they told me that I couldn't give a paper or talk about anything that wasn't directly to do with the work they considered to be my employment by the trust as a consultant, psychiatrist, and psychotherapist in the adult department. Uh, so that would mean if I wanted to give a paper, you know, on the psychology of mathematics, presumably I can't do that because I'm not employed as a in the psychology of mathematics. It's completely absurd. But more than that, it's against the terms of my contract as my lawyers informed me that they didn't have the right to tell me that I couldn't speak on things. Obviously I couldn't speak, I couldn't, you know, go to the press or give a conference and say, the Tavistock is a bad thing. That 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 wouldn't. I mean, uh, that would be be damaging, and I'm not allowed to do that. But I can say a certain form of treatment isn't the right treatment for these children. So they issued those instructions, which I didn't obey because I didn't need to, and then subsequently they threatened me with disciplinary action, and um, I got involved in very complex proceedings involved in in, in uh, defending myself. But in the end, for various reasons, um, it didn't happen. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. And you, like Sonia Appleby and others, are regarded now as whistleblowers by an institution that is taking retaliatory measures against some of you. Yes, of course, they would say, for instance, as regards me, which is what they said in response to the Observer article, 
that the disciplinary actions being taken against me were not, were not connected with my being whistleblower. Uh, I believe that's completely untrue. And since you've left the Tavistock and even before you've spoken out on this, yeah. have you received responses from colleagues, even outside of the United Kingdom, that have mirrored some of your concerns? Very many. Very, very many. I've been in contact with people. I'm part of a group of, of, of clinicians who are, are very concerned, some of them very senior clinicians and academics, you know, but we're a mixed group, but a very substantial group, and constantly evolved. And we hear things from all over the world. Um, but particularly maybe Australia, Sweden, um, America, uh, Canada, uh, other Scandinavian countries, Holland. So the, 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 I've just heard today, I don't know whether you've heard, but the Sweden have just banned puberty blockers. I did not hear this. Yeah, the Karolinska Institute were completely behind it have issued an edict that the, the, the children under 16 are not to be prescribed puberty blockers. And I think we want to support more psychologically informed treatments. This is the backstory that a lot of our listeners are more aware of, this conflict between what's called conversion therapy, but there's two types, right? There's the conversion therapy where a therapist is potentially in the US in certain states going to be imprisoned if he or she were to talk to the patient about gender stereotypes. And perhaps we need to work on accepting reality of your body and that you as a young teenage lesbian can wear all these different clothes. You can still love your body and your life. And all of this is being put into the throws of contention legally in many countries, along with gay conversion therapy, which is already made illegal in many parts of the world, where if you tell a child that they're not really gay, but they're straight, or as in the age, you know, many years ago, some of these kids were even told, you're really just a boy in a girl's body, but we'll deal with that by marrying you off or finding you a nice girlfriend. So you have the conversion therapies of discouraging homosexuality amongst adolescents, let's say, and discouraging quote unquote transition to the other quote unquote gender on the other hand. This raises a huge battlefield amongst many lesbian and gay activists, including the ones I mentioned earlier who had alerted me as to what was happening within this latest manifestation of transgender ideology on the street, I'm speaking. So as a clinician, you face patients who are dealing with, as you earlier mentioned, internalized homophobia, homophobia from their cultural or familial backdrops. And then you've got organizations like Gendered Intelligence, Mermaids, etc., who are instructing even online that you're just the opposite sex couching this as the opposite gender. Obviously, this is confusing for children. It's confusing for adolescents. It's confusing to most people listening to this show in the sense that, as you and I are aware, gender is a sociological nomenclature. It's an idea of gender used to mean masculine and feminine. It didn't even mean man and woman. For much of history, people were referring to the two sexes, not the two genders. People understood sex as man, woman, boy, girl. So how did it come to be that gender has been pathologized medically? And I'm 
I'm not just thinking back to only John Money, but the idea <laughs> that in the mid 20th century, clinics slowly were formed, 60s and 70s as well, were formed to understand, study, lay out practices for dealing with these subjects that came saying, I'm not at home in my body. How did that, which was a drop in the bucket of today in terms of numbers, grow into this ideology which has led to people calling themselves gender non-binary, which is part of that umbrella of trans. I'm pansexual. Again, how did this fall into this new umbrella of transgender identity, thus becoming part of the NHS, the Canadian medical system, private insurance in the United States? Well, it's a big question that, you see, the Tavistock, if you like, which is my immediate sort of knowledge base, um, but that is also psychology and psychiatry function in culture. They, they're not, they can never be separate from the culture. Um, so unlike, you know, I mean, some people make that case for physical diseases as well, though it, it, at the very least it's less straightforward because um, whether or not you have pneumonia or cancer, um, it, it's something that can be investigated. It can be looked at, it could be proven. Whereas, with psychology, it's very, very different. And psychological syndromes come and go. So for example, hysteria, which Freud wrote about, um, there was a huge increase in hysteria in Paris, in Europe. Uh, and then it suddenly got much less. Um, certain kinds of syndromes do seem to come and go. So all psychological syndromes exist on the boundary between the individual and culture. And that's one of the things that makes you know, our work so interesting. So people can have the same kinds of internal problems, but they expressed in different ways, depending on the changing culture that they're in. And there was a, a syndrome not that long ago in the 1990s called false memory syndrome, in which many people were being told by incompetent psychotherapists that they'd been sexually abused when there was no evidence for that. But really they just had false memory syndrome. And this became a huge thing with many people claiming they'd been abused or being told they'd been abused. And then it all went away, just disappeared. So we do get these huge cultural changes affect things. Now, why this has happened with the trans movement is very hard to say. There's a great deal of money behind it. There are some very huge um, funders, particularly in the States, among you know, the wealthiest people, who for whatever reason, I don't know what their reason is, but they've decided to provide funding for, they've helped the penetration of this trans ideology into all areas of our social and cultural life. So that in England, for example, in the UK, Stonewall have received massive funding and they've used it to penetrate various institutions of society, including the health service, government uh, departments, schools, education, and so on, with the, the pro trans ideology, which seems to have completely usurped the fight for e 
um, in terms of sexual identity, in terms of you know, homosexuality, lesbians, so on. And it has been very, very successful. One uh, journalist, I, I could give you the quote, but I haven't got it to hand, but he said in 25 years of political journalism, he'd never known something that had gone so rapidly from being a small movement to becoming government policy and receiving affirmation from so many places with so little, so little thought or reflection. So it's that people quickly think it's very woke, it's very liberal, it's very, and don't really think about it. Now, I'm obviously not saying in any way that I don't think defense of trans people from being discriminated against is unimportant. Of course, that's important. But what's happened is it's penetrated as an ideology into all these various places. And where that's most damaging has been in schools and in um, clinics like gender, the gender service. So the idea that a child presents in a conflicted way with problems and these, what I would call the sacredness of the clinical space where you do your best, you, you obviously no one can be you know, go to some space where you're not affected by the culture that you're in, but good clinicians do their best to try and be as neutral as they can and not to be prejudiced against whatever a child or an adolescent or an adult brings. But in this area, it's very difficult because what happens is servers are told that they have to affirm. So a child says, I'm a boy when they're a girl. You can't do what you would normally do, which is, that's interesting. Tell me about it. Tell me how you came to this idea, what it means to you. And that I mustn't have the idea that it may be, maybe it'd be a better idea for this particular child if they were able to come to terms with things a bit more, to understand how they come to think this, that they may be able to accept their sexual body and be able to be fluid in their gender identification and maybe fluid in their choice of sexual object, whether they're going to be heterosexual, gay or bisexual or whatever. But, but by affirming, you're setting the child on a pathway to irreversible damage to their potential irreversible damage to their body. And affirming is a very clever word, as a colleague of mine pointed out. Who doesn't want to be affirmed? It sounds like such a good thing. But this isn't really about affirmation. It's about collusion. It's about not being a proper psychologist or psychiatrist in terms of keeping an open mind. It's closing things down. It's foreclosure. Well, how did it happen that the best common practice was thrown overboard and the Tavistock did succumb to the trans lobby affirmative approach? Because Zucker in Toronto, he yeah. faced the same problem. I don't think I've got a... a um... A good answer there, but it's got something to do with the capture by the trans ideological organizations of these, um, you know, as I said, of various institutions that includes medical institutions. So that in England, the Royal College of um, Psychiatry, the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health, and various other Royal Colleges uh, support this agenda, 
there's only one that hasn't, that's the Royal College of General Practitioners. But I think things might be changing. But how this, I think one of the things that happens is, is, is subtle and you've alluded to it. And it's to do that many of us are aware of the sad history of homosexuality. Uh, I say homosexuality because it, it was more, it, I, if I got it right, I don't think it was ever, lesbianism was never ever illegal because I don't think it was ever properly acknowledged. That's right. A gay man was illegal, but even after it was made legal, which interestingly, psychoanalysts in England were, were part of making it legal in England um, and the uh, decriminalization of homosexuality. But nevertheless, one can't disown the sad history in psychiatry, psychology and psychotherapy um, of, uh, you know, things change slowly. So for example, I believe that Yes, we don't accept, you know, it's obviously wrong that, that gay people should be criminalized, but we're not that happy about them being psychotherapists. So that changed relatively recently, I'd say only about 25 years ago. And I think that's recent in these things. Well, what is your explanation for the increase of so many young trans-identified people today? Well, you see, one, one of the things I was, was saying about the cultural capture is that many people know that there's a sad story to be told. And you know, in, in psychology is a history of, of, of shock treatment for gay men. So, and they misunderstand the debate about transgender. So they think if they disagree, they're, going, they're, they're doing the same thing again, they're being transphobic. That's why that word is so potent. So they're not, so they're still being the same kind of thing as homophobic. And the trans lobby really supports that. You know, if you're not with us, you're against us and you're transphobe. And there is a, quite a violent um, tyranny that affects many, many people, even people who are, um, you know, academics, clinical workers, they do get affected by this. So it's, it's been very, very successful. And the most recent thing is the issue, as you mentioned, of conversion therapy, where the, this is a kind of what I call a Trojan horse, that it, in order to use the idea of the awfulness of conversion therapy, which was like electric shocks and so on, they're trying to make that seem as if a clinician who doesn't affirm is involved in conversion therapy. That's the invasion of the clinical space by political ideology and would do terrible damage to clinicians and also to, 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 um, to, to their patients because the clinician will be terrorized internally. They can't just occupy their quiet, neutral space. They have to affirm. And that will be, uh, and if that did become law, that would do uh, terrible damage. Coming back to your question, how has this happened? Why has this been this huge increase? Um, well, I think in adults, it's hard to say. In young people, I think it's become, it's many different factors. I think one factor is what I call the penetration of the commodity form into everyday life. So parts of life which are not commoditized, of which health should be one, and within the health service isn't commoditized, but in any place where there's any private practice, there is 
a sense of health becomes a commodity. So many areas of, of ordinary life become invaded by a kind of commodity structure. So, and I think one aspect of this, as, if you like a deep one, not, not a manifest one, is the commoditization of the self and the body. The belief that the self and the body are commodities which can be exchanged. Now I'm not saying that a suffering child with these terrible, in this painful state is saying, oh, I just fancy going to the supermarket and getting a different body. Of course not. I'm just saying that there's something within the culture that acts as what I call a kind of tendential. It pulls one into thinking that the, of, of the self and the body as a commodity. That's one aspect of it. I think another aspect is misogyny. I think there's much more misogyny in culture than there was. I think it's increasing. And I think it's partly because, um, at least in the UK situation, with the years and years of so-called austerity, that is the immiseration of people who are less fortunate and the depriving them of, of services and the um, collapse in many parts of uh, social care and health service has been accompanied by a kind of contempt for dependency. And in our culture, obviously it's not a given, but it's in our culture, women are often an embodiment of, of that kind of provision. There's a tendency to be seen as rather feminine. But I think there has been a sense of strong femininity embodied in the health service and social services. Um, but I think the contempt for dependency and care, for instance, in the UK talking about strivers, the Conservative Party used to talk about uh, strivers, that is good people who strive and are strong and get on their bikes and get a job, as opposed to skivers. Skivers are people who wimp and whine at home and want nanny, a nanny state to do something for them. This is full of a degradation of femininity. And I think girls pick this up. So I think there's misogyny as part of it. And it does seem that women who speak out about this are the people who are attacked, often violently. Um, so um, I think misogyny is part of it. I think another part of it is the, which is both part of it and a vehicle for it, is the is social media and the internet. That is that the social media and internet provide a sort of rapid fire medium in which things can um, escalate very, very rapidly. A huge acceleration. So children become part of things, they sign up online, they become part of a group, and some of these groups have a cultish quality. Um, so that's, that's uh, another aspect of it. But I think there's a lot more to understand about that. Do you know if the Tavistock and Portman are going to review whistleblowing policies in the wake of what's happened? I have no information on that, but I, I would doubt it. Because they, they don't believe that they've acted against a whistleblower. They claim that the things they were um, trying to take me to disciplinary acts about had nothing to do with whistleblowing. That is completely untrue in my view. The the, the the, the things I'd done were all connected, which they didn't, the things which they made them unhappy were all the things connected with my work in trying to bring this attention to my colleagues, this, this terrible um, collapse of care and of values and the kind of values that the Tavistock has always embodied. 
I was trying to bring this to the attention of the trust and also to the wider public. It's phenomenal after Lisa Littman's work on this subject, for which she too was attacked, that we're not seeing yeah. more of these services even engage an on-staff sociologist. I mean, has anyone in any clinic around the world looked at this link between rapid onset gender dysphoria, the push for kids online, on Reddit, on Twitter, to become the opposite, quote-unquote, gender, and the numbers that are coming into the doors of these clinics? Should this not be investigated? Of course it should be investigated and should be thought about. I, I, I believe the Tavistock has had a research grant. I, I'm, I'm uh, not at all hopeful that they will be able to use it in a way that will be helpful to this, given that they've been so signed up to the ideology themselves. I think they lack the capacity. You should, the, the, such research should be carried out with people who don't have a material interest in it.